Hello, and welcome to the Sinobabble podcast. This is the second episode about the most recent protests in Hong Kong taking place in 2020. If you missed the first episode, I suggest you go back and listen, as that one outlines exactly what's been happening over the past few months and why. This episode is more about censorship, both in general and of the media during these Hong Kong protests. I want to talk a little bit about why censorship and self-censorship is harmful not only to the rights of Hong Kongers, but to people all around the world, giving examples specifically from China and my own experience. In January of 2020, before all the coronavirus stuff broke out, I attended an academic conference in Hawaii for scholars of Chinese studies. Most of the talks were fairly standard, but one of them really stuck in my mind at the time. A professor gave a talk about censorship and self-censorship in Chinese studies academic works, and gave three examples. The first was an example already very widely known within the Chinese studies community. In 2017, Cambridge University Press blocked somewhere between 300 and 1,000 articles from their Chinese website, including those from high-profile journals in Chinese studies such as the China Quarterly. The main topics that were censored covered things like the Cultural Revolution, the Falun Gong, Mao Zedong, Tibet, Tiananmen, Taiwan, and Xinjiang, either where these terms appeared in the title or the body of the article. The second case that he mentioned was a bit more recent. In 2018, Brill, another academic publisher, removed an article from a Chinese studies journal leading the scholars to discover that the company was actually associated with the Chinese higher education press and thus subject to Chinese censorship standards, as opposed to being a Western free press as they had been led to believe by the members of the editorial board, who were all Western scholars. Brill later terminated its relationship with the Chinese higher education press following backlash. The last example was one personal to himself. An article that he'd written that talked about the transformation of China since the 1980s naturally mentioned Tiananmen Square and the June 4th incident a number of times. When that article was translated into Chinese, those words and phrases on those controversial topics were removed and replaced with blank squares, you know, the kind that you see when your system isn't compatible with Chinese text. Funnily enough, this wasn't even the only time that self-censorship sort of came up during this one conference. A panel that was supposed to be held on Xinjiang had to be cancelled because three mainland Chinese professors who were going to talk about historical Xinjiang wanted to avoid being present while someone else spoke about modern-day internment camps in the region and the slow but steady ethnic cleansing of the Uyghur people. Instead of even just listening and, you know, choosing not to comment or remain silent, they chose to distance themselves entirely from the issue, preventing their own work from being heard by an interesting audience, because they were most likely worried about the repercussions of attending the other, more controversial talk. Now, what does this academic conference about China have to do with Hong Kong and Western media self-censoring negative news about the protests in Hong Kong or the mainland? I'm trying to make a broader point about self-censorship, namely that by performing acts of self-censorship in order to protect an outside body, or let's say a major global superpower, you leave yourself open to full censorship in the future and back yourself into a corner where you're no longer able to speak out if that outside body does something truly heinous or against your principles. 
Freedom of thought and exchange are the cornerstones of academic work, just as freedom of expression is the cornerstone of a free and open society. Self-censorship is just the first step down a road to the outright banning of certain speech and thought altogether. I think this applies to Hong Kong media even more. Certain outlets are self-censoring now, choosing to remain quiet or lean towards the mainland on certain issues, but when they fall under the control of the CCP in 2047, they will not be rewarded for touting the party line. Instead, they will be subjected to the same censorship rules that mainland papers are expected to follow. Besides the fact that this goes against journalistic integrity in general, it actually makes your job more difficult, as you spend more time trying to figure out what is and isn't acceptable, thus taking self-censorship to a new height and preventing the public from seeing what they should be seeing, which is what's going on. Okay, so let's jump back a little bit and discuss what exactly certain media outlets have been doing to censor themselves in the context of the Hong Kong protests. I've seen a lot of posts recently on my own social media feeds of people wondering whether or not the Hong Kong protests are still even happening, especially in light of the recent protests in the US regarding racism and police brutality. It's quite apparent that while people have a very good idea of what's going on in the US, people have no idea at all that there are protests in Hong Kong, or if they do, they don't really know what they're about. But considering the media attention that the protests in Hong Kong received all throughout last year, and the importance of Hong Kong and China to the global economic political sphere, it seems to me that it's more than a simple issue of this news being drowned out by other news. I might be overthinking it, tell me if I am, but I think media outlets actively choosing not to talk about what's going on has a lot to do with the low visibility of the current situation in Hong Kong. As of May 2020, Self-reported press freedom in Hong Kong is at an all-time low, and record numbers of journalists reported in a study fearing for their safety when outperforming their jobs. It's funny to me that I actually read that report in the SCMP, as, to be honest, they're the outlet that I'm most disappointed in in this whole thing. The SCMP, or South China Morning Post, gave really excellent, I would say outstanding coverage of the protests during last summer, where they not only gave news coverage from the front lines of the protests, but actually invited people from all across the political spectrum and from different walks of life to express their views on the protests in their opinion section. Now, if you give their opinion section a quick scroll, it either shows a bunch of tepid, middle-of-the-road, non-committal articles about how both sides need to listen to one another, or hardline pro-Beijing pieces aimed at smashing the credibility of the protesters painting them as pseudo-terrorists. The front page of the website is usually directed away from the political, either talking about the situation in the US, the ongoing coronavirus, or China's plans for world domination, for example, the dispute with India and the South China Sea issue. No internal conflict is mentioned, save for in the opinion section, as mentioned. If we compare the SCMP to another outlet, like the Hong Kong Free Press, there's such a huge contrast in the way that they've chosen to address the issue. Hong Kong Free Press not only brings up-to-date news about the protests and surrounding political developments, they even manage to strike a balanced and nuanced tone by allowing contributions from non-staff members. To their everlasting credit, they actually published Carrie Lam's letter to Hong Kong, which I read out in the last episode. Is their broad coverage an act of daring in the face of an almighty authoritarian state? 
Well, to understand that, we would have to understand how China approaches censorship and how this approach also affects how other countries and other companies deal with news about China. Let's take a very recent example of extreme censorship by the Chinese state. In April, the CCP announced that Animal Crossing, the hugely popular casual game about building a community on a small island, would be banned as some users had used the in-game design tools to make pro-Hong Kong independence designs or derogatory slogans about the CCP, which they then reposted onto social media. Now, to be clear, the CCP did not make this announcement public. Instead, it was sort of circulated that certain retailers had just received a notification that they were to take down Animal Crossing. But make no mistake, China does not hesitate to censor anything that it believes is a threat not only to national security, but to the collective mindset and public image of the CCP. And that's everything from Winnie the Pooh to Peppa Pig to now harmless video games. This means that private companies such as Taobao and AliExpress also had to delist the product and remove it from their site. In other words, the decision by the Chinese government to ban a certain product not only affects people's freedom, but also the operations of private companies. This isn't just an internal issue that only affects Chinese business. China's growing international influence means that it has the ability to affect how businesses operate, even when that business doesn't operate in China. Last week, The Verge reported that YouTube was banning comments that contain the phrases wumao and gongfei. A wumao is a common slang term for a professional commenter paid to post positive things about the CCP, while gongfei essentially means communist bandit. YouTube said that this was an error that they were looking to fix, but it's not even the first time that the company has been caught in this kind of controversy. Last year, it was revealed that Google, YouTube's parent company, was planning to launch a censored version of their search engine in China under a project codename Dragonfly. Google has already been in meetings with top Chinese officials about the project and has presented a number of prototypes of what the online platform and app would look like. If one of the biggest, most influential companies in the world is willing to go out of their way, undermine their own principles and kowtow to an authoritarian body, then what's to say that anybody else would even stand a chance? And of course, we've already mentioned how Western academic publishers are already bowing down to the will of the Chinese propaganda wing. Call me biased, but banning certain intellectual conversations is just as important as the censorship of mainstream topics and news, as both of these sides sort of inform one another to create a narrative. That narrative and its interpretation can obviously be up for debate, that's called a healthy discussion, but to ban certain narrative voices or viewpoints altogether erodes freedom of expression and damages public perception of the truth. Now, I'm not saying that without self-censorship that these platforms and media channels are usually completely unbiased. Actually, it's quite the opposite. Every platform has its audience, and that audience has its own likes and dislikes, its own political leanings, its own culture, its own vibe, etc. There are so many different outlets for news, precisely because society is not a homogenous group that all thinks the same, but rather lots of small groups or communities that have certain things more or less in common with each other. If you're someone like me, you like hearing from both sides, even if you lean to one side as opposed to the other. Even if you don't, and you only get your news from one source, it could be that with increasing censorship and self-censorship, 
the unique voice of your favourite paper or outlet ends up having the same voice as every other news outlet, with no critique, analysis or questioning allowed. This is essentially how papers in mainland China operate. The party updates newspapers on political events that they're allowed to report on, of course in a tone favourable to the CCP, and reporting and investigative reporting is allowed only to a certain extent, as long as it doesn't tarnish the reputation of the party or the nation, which is the same thing, and as long as it doesn't encourage any immoral behaviour. I've spoken a little bit about media censorship on a previous podcast about celebrities and prostitution, so if you want to know more about how censorship operates in media in China, you can go ahead and listen to that one. Now, newspapers and other media outlets are businesses, and businesses in Hong Kong have to think about their long-term survival in the increasingly overbearing political situation. As pressure from Beijing increases, will places like the Hong Kong Free Press survive? It doesn't look promising. The CCP is, after all, an authoritarian state, and while capitalism is permitted, the market is still regulated. News outlets may be businesses, but they fall under the remit of the state. Their actions are only permissible as far as the state allows, and soon there won't be a lot that they are allowed to do. Going back to the case of censorship of academic articles, these publications rely on Chinese funding, both from institutional subscriptions and contributions from scholars, to keep running. If the Chinese government puts a blanket ban on certain publishers, this will severely hurt their chances of survival, and, of course, any academic discourse of any kind. The risks of journalism are slightly different, of course. Journalists often have to put themselves into situations that may bring physical harm onto themselves, or they may receive hate or backlash from viewers and the authorities. Journalists in Hong Kong also face verbal and physical assault when they are on the front lines of protests, making it even more undesirable to cover these events as one's personal safety may be at risk. For example, during the Mong Kok protests of May 2020, several journalists reported being harassed by the police, forced to turn off their cameras and kneel with their hands over their heads while being verbally abused and sprayed with pepper spray. The chief of police did apologise to the press, but he did not promise any actions to be taken. Of course, this is both part of the job of a journalist covering a dangerous situation, but it's also understandable why it would deter some outlets and some journalists from even approaching scenes where violent clashes are happening. But something that these outlets need to bear in mind is that their voices are necessary, and the people rely on them to get their news and to help them form opinions about the current political climate. They don't even have to be voices of dissension, mocking or berating the CCP for their actions. However, to be silent on this issue when the future of your own state is at stake, along with the future of your own company, speaks volumes. And for outlets such as the SCMP, who are so influential in the Hong Kong news world, their silence is truly damning. That's it for this episode, guys. I hope you enjoyed it. Do check out the first episode of this series, which was released a few days ago, as well as the former series on the Hong Kong 2019 protests if you missed all of that. Check out the website for more information, and if you think they're worth listening to, do share these podcasts with your friends to keep them up to date on what's going on in Hong Kong. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you tune in next time.